everybody. This is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. And I have an, an old podcasting friend back with me <laughs> this week. Hey, Christine. Hi. Many of you know Christine from when I first started doing this podcast because she and I kind of started around the same time. I started just a little bit before. And so we were kind of helping each other out with sort of figuring out how to do all of this. So it's been like, what, a year and a half now? Yeah, I think it's been a year and a half. You have been chugging along. I have been podcasting in fits and spurts. So <laughs> I was kind of doing that in the beginning. And then I kind of just decided a couple of months ago, a few months ago to just sort of try to get more serious about it, either kind of like do it or not do it. So I've been trying to be more consistent with it. So Christine, of course, you guys know, is with Antidotes Podcast, and you're going to be putting out some more episodes soon, right? Yes, I have some that have been recorded, and I just need to actually edit them. You know how the healthcare schedule gets in the way of everything, uh, especially fun projects like podcasting. So we haven't... In the news story, you know, typically we just talk like 10, 15 minutes about the story. I feel like we could talk for hours about this because (laughs) number one, it's scary. Like there's so many parts of it that are so scary, but it's you being a nurse practitioner. This is a great story. A, A listener sent this in to me on Instagram. She messaged me to tell me about the story. We spent like an hour just talking about this beforehand and (laughs) we're like, oh, maybe, maybe we should record this. I know. It's just, (laughs) I I wanted to to be like, hey, did you just kind of get an idea, a feel for where you were? And then we just kept going, talking about it because it's crazy. So thank you, Mary, for sending in this story. It's really fascinating, but it's Eagle River nurse practitioner charged in three opioid deaths as feds investigate nearly 20 more. So this nurse practitioner She's been working for 18 years doing this in Alaska and they've arrested her and they're investigating overdose deaths. They must have enough proof that that they went and arrested her for it, that she's responsible because she's been, quote, quote in, according to the, the article, illegally prescribing these opioids. Yeah, there's so much to unpack and to consider with that. I mean, of course our knee-jerk reaction as any prescriber is to be like, oh my gosh, how can we be arrested for the death of a patient? You know, any adverse reaction for a medication is so terrible and heartfelt and it would just destroy me emotionally. I can't imagine. But then at times there are criminal prescribers. And when it comes to opioids, you know, we got into the opioid mess for a reason. And, you know, inappropriate prescribing is the most benign way to word it. Straight up malicious prescribing has been, is probably a better way to say it. You know, they're extorting the situation and and these very addictive substances. And, you know, they're white coat drug dealers, Mm. essentially. And not to accuse her because she's she was just arrested. This is all very, very new, but there have been other cases I know where it has been proven and their people are in prison now that they were just taking advantage of people who are addicted and it's all about the money. Yeah. They don't care yeah. about the, the people. They're just prescribing because there's a lot of money in pain management. And there's also, I have found prescribers who are willfully ignorant of addiction. I found that to be a lot more of an issue once I've gotten into practice. Uh, I used to work in addiction medicine and when I worked in EMS, so I saw a lot of overdoses and I've seen a lot of people, I've I've seen several providers, especially like in primary care where they work in more affluent areas where they're much freer with the medication because they're like, oh, well, you know, rich people don't get addicted to drugs. <laughs> I mean, it's much easier for someone, a, a patient of means to hide an addiction or maintain an addiction without that kind of spiraling damage to their social life and their job function and all that kind of thing. So the prescribers are saying, oh, well, I'm just treating their pain. I'm just maintaining. I'm, you know, nothing's bad happening to them. They're still a successful attorney or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so that the prescribers kind of give them, they rationalize the over prescribing this way. And and I'm not saying that everyone does this, but I've just 
I've seen these examples firsthand and that's usually the reason that they're giving. Yeah, so it's it's kind of, I can sort of see that happening. So she had been prescribing methadone, oxycodone, hydrocodone, and you had remarked about illegally prescribing them. Yeah. The way I have seen illegal opioid prescribing, this is always such a tricky thing to word. Um, <laughs> I have seen people who have inappropriately prescribed and a lot of times it's not the right follow-up or they're just writing a prescription and the patient's not coming into the office for an actual visit or they're, they're dating their prescriptions out, you know, or you mail them their prescriptions or something. You know, that would be how I would imagine. That, the, that it's considered illegal because they're trying to get around the regulation. Yeah, she's legally allowed to prescribe prescriptions, but she's doing it in an illegal manner. There's not the right documentation. She's not seeing patients face-to-face. Um, she's probably not diagno- like documenting pain or, yeah. you know, for... Pain management. I've never worked in pain management, but from my limited understanding, you have to check urine drug screens or drug levels for certain things. You know, make sure that they're not using other illicit substances. That they actually have the substances in their bloodstream. Because what if they're selling it? You oh, know, good point. Why are you coming back for a refill if you're not? If it's not even in your system, right? And then sometimes, if you're prescribing that amount of narcotics, your facility may and probably should have things in place, like especially methadone. Methadone is in the lower 48, administered through a clinic. It's usually daily dosed. Only very, very stable patients will get take-home doses. But in Alaska, you can get methadone, and I just learned this yesterday, without a methadone clinic. They can just prescribe it at a pharmacy, and it's managed differently. But that makes sense for Alaska, because obviously that patient population it's so remote. There's such limited access to care. You want to be able to enable people to get care. And especially if it's addiction care or whatever that they do need. Well, that does make sense. In the indictment, it was it's saying that some of these people would travel for hundreds of miles from remote communities there to come to that clinic. And so to me, when I'm reading an article, I don't want to just like, because the, let's be honest, the media can sometimes spin things any way they want to. Oh, yeah. And just because a prosecutor has decided to indict her and they are, have arrested her, that doesn't mean that they should. And perfect example is the Redonda Vought case in Nashville, the Vanderbilt mm. nurse. Yeah. Because that is just absolutely ridiculous, that whole situation. So I don't want to just jump right to, wow, this is terrible. But I mean, I don't think it would be unusual in Alaska to drive hundreds of miles to be able to see a provider because it probably, like you said, they probably are. Or more like they're flying. Yeah. Because a lot of those villages are are only accessible by bush plane. Mm. And so they also may have different refill statutes in Alaska. Like you know, you get a six-month refill because you're going to above the Arctic Circle and you're not going to see the doctor for your chronic medication. Mm-hmm. That may be something that exists. I'm just, I'm guessing. Yeah. It's something we just have to, you know, assess the situation with a, kind of a critical eye of rural medicine. Uh, I would never do that in D.C. <laughs> yes. I, I really would. I'm, I'm curious to see what's going to happen because she was, this just happened this will go forward and I'm sure more information will come out eventually. So I just want to kind of hear her side of the story, you know? Yeah. I also know that as a provider in Alaska, you can make a lot of money. When I was job hunting initially as a new NP, there was this posting that was like, go to Alaska for like $150,000 with student loan repayment. And then you know, tens of thousands of dollars of bonuses if you stay there for a few years, like, or for more than six months. And then in the posting, it says, this is not Juno. This is not Anchorage. There are no large trees around. Huh, really? (laughs) It was like a remote posting and it was like a lot of money and bonuses. And it was like, if you stay for more than six months or a year, you keep getting these bonuses. So I... It's just because there's such a a healthcare shortage of people that want to go there. So if you are a ethical and compassionate experienced provider, 
please go help the people of Alaska. They definitely need you. Yes. (laughs) Definitely. Sounds like it for sure. And go pay off your student loans. (laughs) So I guess we'll move on from that story and maybe keep an eye on what happens as that progresses. Yeah. I'm also interested in just real quickly, the patients that she already, that she has. I'm sure she has a huge panel and you don't want to abruptly stop those medications, whether they are for illegitimate or legitimate purposes, because that's how you end up getting people on heroin and they overdose because they go to the street looking for them. Mm. Those need to be tapered very slowly, very carefully and managed very appropriately by a clinician. And my heart goes out to those other people, whether or not they were, you know, being prescribed appropriately. That's, you know, I I do feel for them. Yes. That's a, that's a great point, Christine, because they're, they're going to suffer because of this, I'm sure. Yeah. So this, this bat, you know, as if we weren't, I feel like we were about almost talking about, almost doing a bad nurse story (laughs) there, but, um, which that's kind of how the news stories are. Inconclusive bad nurse practitioner. Yeah, we don't know yet. So you guys, Good Nurse, Bad Nurse has a new sponsor. They're called Incredible Health. They are a staffing agency that connects nurses to permanent positions in hospitals. So rather than nurses applying to multiple hospitals, the hospitals are applying to the nurses through Incredible Health based on profiles that the nurses create. All you have to do is go to IncredibleHealth.com forward slash Good Nurse, create a profile, brag about yourself a little so they'll know how amazing you are and pick out what hospitals you want to work for. Then you just sit back and wait for interview requests to come in. So go to IncredibleHealth.com forward slash Good Nurse. Show our sponsors you really love us and create a profile today. This next story, the, this our bad nurse story, this in this case, there's sort of a crossover between the fact that she's a nurse and the fact that this is in her personal life. So this is about Kelly Ripstra. She was a pediatric nurse and she was working at Texas Children's at the time and when she had her daughter, Rachel. Um, she was born in August 2009, so this was 10 years ago that it began. So her daughter's born in August of 2009. By October of that year, Kelly started reporting to Rachel's pediatrician that she was having acid reflux and spitting up her milk. Now, this is very, very common for babies, and a lot of times pediatricians will diagnose colic and treat it with like Tagamet or something like that to treat acid reflux because they think there's a connection somehow. Have you ever heard of that? I've heard of it. I do not have children and I, I'm i a family nurse practitioner that has only really ever worked with adults. So I will defer to you as a mama. Yeah, and- <laughs> that's the only thing. That's the only experience I have is the mom uh, side of it. But that I do have a little bit of experience. My youngest son literally had this happen. He was, he had colic. It was so bad. And when I took him to the doctor, they they just said, you know, there may be maybe an immature sphincter, you know, their esophagus, where their esophagus meets, you know, the stomach and is maybe not developed. And so some of that stomach contents can back up and, and it just causes pain and then they get irritated. So... We treated Levi's colic with, I believe it was Tagamet. I remember mixing it up and having to give it to him in this little syringe. So when I read this, when I started reading this, that was immediately what I thought of was, oh, I bet, I wonder if Rachel was having colic. And then she had to take her to the the doctor and was like frustrated, like, oh, she will not stop crying. And then they, they start treating it with, you know, treating acid reflux. Well, but then there were times when I I I, I kind of went back and forth because he would we would we would use it the you know exactly the way we're supposed to and then we would still struggle with with the crying <laughs> um, so I don't know if they really know or if they're just like here's us here's something we can give to these moms and dads who are it's just so hard who are pulling their hair out <laughs> so, <laughs> so I do have a lot of new moms that listen to. What advice I would give to you, just as kind of like a little aside as a mom, is that is an advice that was actually given to me when Joel, my twenty year old, was really was really a baby. There are times that you go through, where you just think this is so hard. Being a being a mom is so hard. Or sometimes it's not that they're crying. Or sometimes it's just a f- different phases that they go through. So one thing that this person uh, said to me was, whatever you're going through with your baby or with your child, 
those phases just last. They're very temporary. They only last a very short time and they're on to something else. They'll move, they'll move on. They'll, you will get past it. Don't Postpartum depression is very, very real. So if, Yeah, it really is. Yes. If you're struggling with this, if, if a baby has colic or has issues like acid reflux, it could induce postpartum depression or makes it, may exacerbate it, make it worse. So all of these things, I just want to say, obviously get help for it if you feel like you're struggling with postpartum depression. But also remember that these phases are very short. They're very short-lived, usually a month, two months, and they'll be on to something else. And you won't even, you'll hardly remember that that time that you were going through. So just try to be patient. And I'm really sorry if you're going through that right now. <laughs> Because it's hard. This is, this is a sidebar, but we live in a townhouse and our neighbors had a baby. That child <laughs> is so colicky. Oh, those poor parents are just ripping their hair. Like, yeah. I feel so bad for them. And my boyfriend's like, do they all yell like that? And I was just like, so we're going to hold off having kids yeah. for a little while. It's the best birth control ever. <laughs> right. To, yeah. It's right next to our bedroom. <laughs> so this is how this whole story starts with Kelly and little Rachel. And they're thinking it's acid reflux. Her pediatrician refers her to a pediatric gastroenterologist. So it got so bad that I guess the pediatrician felt like, well, this is definitely not working. The, yeah. the GI doctor uh, increased her reflux medication. So apparently he concurred with the pediatrician and felt like, yeah, that's probably right on the money. There must be some sort of issue. He put her on a milk protein allergy diet. Kelly continued taking her back to the doctor because she said she was vomiting and had diarrhea. So this, now we've moved beyond obviously just, you know, an acid reflux issue or colic Vomiting, diarrhea, there's no way that that's, that's normal. Something is definitely wrong. Yeah. The doctor, that GI doctor, put her on some more di- you know, medications, changed her diet again, ordered some tests, endoscopies, colonoscopies, biopsies. All Pretty invasive yeah, that, testing. That had to have gotten to the point that the doctor was like, we need to figure out what's going on. Because if a baby is vomiting and has diarrhea, they're not going to be able to thrive. They're not going to, no. they're not getting the nutrients that they need. They're, they're, they're going to, all of their electrolytes are going to be thrown off. They're not going to be able to gain weight. Yeah. And so they, they, this doctor knows that they have to figure out what's going on. Well, by April of 2011, so we're going on almost two years now, two-year-old, she's not getting weight the way she should have. The GI doctor was concerned, of course, so he decided to have put an NG tube in so Kelly could give her supplemental food and medicine right into her, you know, goes right into the stomach through that tube. So according to Kelly, she's still vomiting. Now, I don't really, I'm, I'm a little confused here. When I first read this, I thought if a child is vomiting, how is putting an NG tube, unless it's going to go post-pyloric, how is that NG tube going to help anything? You're going to put it right into the stomach. Any, if, if you're, How's that different? If you sw- if you can swallow and it goes into the stomach and it comes right back up as, you know, emesis, how is that different? It goes into the NG tubes, into your stomach. It's still going to come right back up, is it not? Well, maybe the vomiting is because it's, you know, something like esophageal, like there's an esophageal stenosis or there's some kind of peristalsis issue. Okay. And maybe the gag reflux of it going down through there is what's triggering the vomiting. Also... When you're vomiting that much, it's irritating the esophagus. So if the food is not going down, passing through it, it's not going to be irritating it down. So maybe it's helping um, decrease inflammation going down and giving the esophagus a little bit of a break yeah. if you're still vomiting. i guessing. It's also more concentrated nutrition, higher calories mm-hmm. that they can calibrate and um, as opposed to just giving or something well, when she was still vomiting and still not able to tolerate that intake that she was getting through the NG tube, he had a Mickey button. Yeah. We've always called it a Mickey button, the little button, mm-hmm. instead of uh, what we would see on an adult patient, like a, a, a one of the large standard peg tube type things. Mm-hmm. But 
he did have this installed, which is just a, it's a little tube that comes right out of the the abdomen there, right right out right through the skin. It's a direct access into her stomach and also a line that would actually go well. Actually, in November two thousand eleven, they put in the 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 G tube that goes right into the stomach. Mm-hmm. They also put in a central line and started giving her TPN. This is something that, to me, this is very serious. It's a big deal. Central lines are a huge source of infection. We try to get them out as fast as possible. You don't want people having central lines. And TPN, there are lots of issues with with TPN. Yeah. It's also extremely expensive. It's extremely expensive. You have to have, it has to be extremely calibrated it of you know what's going into it mm-hmm. it can be really toxic for your veins and she's two yeah she's two years old it's it's this was so shocking when i was reading the story it was like wait two years old and she's just this is what we've had to get to is she must be completely failing mm-hmm. if this is going on and i am imagining that there I'm imagining there's other workups going on, Mm -hmm. like genetic and autoimmune workups. Is this, you know, God knows what, where she, you know, can't process nutrients through her GI tract that she has to go to TPN. That's such a severe step. It's a severe step for lots of reasons. One thing that I thought of immediately is when you start somebody on TPN and your GI tract is not having things going through it, it can cause problems for your GI tract because it's not... It's not having to work. Yeah, gastroparesis yeah. and it's important to have to be you you have to use it or lose it. It's that your whole body's like that. <laughs> is it yeah. not? Your brain <laughs> yeah. is like that. Everything is like that. I've heard people uh, we have had friends who had a swimming pool uh when my children were growing up and, and she would say, Bring your kids over and let them swim in the pool. I don't have anybody swimming in it. It needs to be used, you know? <laughs> it's just everything's got it's kinda like that. Even your house swimming is pools like are that. just like jejunums. <laughs> swimming pools are just like jejunums. <laughs> <laughs> so, so <laughs> I love you, Christina. So, <laughs> so in January of 2012. So now we talked about the the G tube. Now she's still vomiting. It's not this. Nothing. None of this is working. So they have to insert a tube that goes right into the jejunum. The jejunum. <laughs> the J tube. So she's can get, she can get meds th- down below that pyloric sphincter. Now we're down there in the small intestine. We're going to put the nutrients right into the small intestine. Hopefully it can't back up then into the stomach and then be vomited up, you would think. Yeah. A lot of nutrients are absorbed in the small intestine. So you'd think if you could do this, it's going to really be helpful. She's going to maybe start thriving then. But still, Rachel is continuing vomiting and having diarrhea that, okay, I can understand that. And then started developing fevers at home. Hello, Central Line. Yeah. The GI doctor wanted Rachel to just go on regular feedings. Now, okay, let's back all this off and go on regular feedings and see can... None of this is working. We're putting her at risk with all the stuff we're doing. Well, her mom is like, no, this is... I don't want to do this. So he referred her to another GI doctor for a second opinion. So now she's seeing two different doctors She's in and out of the hospital multiple times and, of course, developed a central line infection. Now, what is really odd about the central line infection, I'm not surprised at at all. It's just, that's, it's going to happen the longer that line stays in there. What was right. really interesting to me is that there were multiple types of bacteria. Yeah, and atypical bacteria. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you have your typical hospital nosocomial infections that you're going to get. But if you're seeing something that is not from a hospital, that's a that's a real big red flag. Yeah, and the doctors were definitely looking at this like, what's going on here? Because it's, it's one thing for her to have GI issues. Now, all of a sudden, she has a problem with, 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 infe- with infections. So neither doctor could really find a medical explanation for her symptoms. And then not only is she getting worse, but she's having all these other issues. For example, her hemoglobin levels are dropping off suddenly for no apparent reason. Uh, she 
to the point that she was having to have blood transfusions. She had numeral, numerous complications with her feeding tube itself, like becoming dislodged. She had the central line infections that we talked about. She had mm-hmm. severe episodes of hypernatremia, which is, of course, high sodium levels. Most of our listeners are, are nurses or somehow medical related, but it, so I, I don't want to assume though, because I have had some people who are like, I'm not in the medical field, but I just like the podcast. So I try yeah, to remember yeah. to, to explain these things. So that is a, a hypernatremia. It's when your sodium levels in your blood get high. So one of the first episodes that we did on Good Nurse, Bad Nurse was a story about a mom who was putting salt in her son's feeding tube. So this is, I'm sure, a red flag, this hypernatremia. Why would she have too much salt in her bloodstream? Mm-hmm. I mean, you can have hypernatremia from fluid loss. So like if you're if you're sweating a lot and you're, you know, vomiting a lot, you could have it. But I mean, diarrhea too, if it's just water, but not to this yeah, extent. Because the sodium is in regards to your blood levels itself. So if you have a low amount of water, right. it would show the, so I, and so dehydration could be one explanation. And that's going to come into play a little later into the story. So Rachel has to be hospitalized repeatedly because of these issues, obviously numerous medical treatments. And then by June of 2013, so we've gotten into 2013, she's born in 2009. That's four years that this has been going on. The second GI doctor, Dr. Chow, started suspecting Munchausen's by proxy. So Dr. Chow, that second GI doctor, consults this a pediatrician, Dr. Marcella Donnarumma, who is not only a pediatrician, she's an expert on Munchausen's. So it does kind of strike me that the doctors went four years without thinking it. Do you think they really went four years without thinking about it? Or they just didn't want to maybe jump to that when you have a sick child? I think it may have been in the, I think it may have been in the back of their minds, but you know, it's such a hard thing to prove. And it's almost one of those diagnoses of exclusion things. And it's, if it is Munchausen by proxy, you still want to be treating the child. So even if you're thinking about it in the back of your mind, maybe they're involving an ethics committee behind the scenes. You know, she's a nurse. How can we make her better to gather the evidence while we're treating her. I mean, I I wouldn't imagine, you know, in the first year or two that they would think it. But after two years, they maybe were like, okay, how do we prove this mm. while we're thinking about it? It's, it's such a tricky thing to prove. Yeah. So in August of 2013, one day, one day after Rachel, the baby was discharged. And now, by now she's like, I guess, four. She was discharged from the hospital and apparently when she was discharged, she was, according to the hospital and the doctors, she was completely fine. There was her blood levels, everything, she was she was good. So she goes, so they send her home. And then the next morning at 6 a.m., Kelly brought her back to Texas Children's Emergency Department with an extremely elevated sodium level. And so Rachel had to be admitted to the ICU so since they had begun to suspect that someone was possibly making her sick, the staff placed her in a therapeutic separation and did not let anyone be near her, including her mom, Kelly. And then miraculously, her sodium levels went back to normal. She was able to start eating solid foods. She no longer needed the central line or the feeding tubes. And so that pediatrician and the expert on Munchausen's, after looking through all of the records over the past four years and considering everything that was going on, concluded that she had been suffering from medical child abuse. And this was the same hospital that Katie worked at, right? Yeah. Yeah. That makes it so much harder. I know. So, yeah, I, to, on the staff, on the, everyone. And just the access that she has, Mm -hmm. the knowledge of how things work, how she can manipulate the system. Mm -hmm. Further, I was, as you were talking, I was quickly looking up to see what kind of atypical bacteria there were <laughs> in there. So I, I was listening, I swear. <laughs> and I, there was this UC Davis case law review. And I think 
they had said that there were pathogens from saliva or fecal matter. Oh, So like, you know, if you do a throat swab, you'll see like, oh, you know, typical, you know, normal oral pharyngeal flora, you know, seeing no strep. Like that's a common thing. Mm -hmm. But if you're seeing oral pharyngeal flora in a central line, well, wait a minute, that's weird. So maybe that's what what happened. So maybe she was like spitting in it or fecal matter. Gosh, I know. It's just horrible to think that... It's awful to think someone would do something like this, especially a nurse that knows how dangerous this is. Yeah, yeah. Well, they did charge Kelly with two felony offenses of intentionally or knowingly causing serious bodily injury to a child. The jury found her guilty. They gave her 20 years in prison for each offense. She is to serve the uh, those two sentences, the two 20-year prison sentences concurrently. So they'll, they'll, that'll be at the same time. She appealed the decision. And what her defense said is that there wasn't enough evidence to support the guilty verdict. She said the judge shouldn't have allowed certain evidence in that tainted the jury's ability to make a fair decision. And the judge allowed the jury to hear the state's discussion regarding Munchausen's. When they were selecting the jurors, they were asking questions like, are you familiar with Munchausen's by proxy? Things like that. So with right, they, during the Vaudois. Right. And so they're, they're saying, well, her defense was saying, well, that's just automatically putting that into their minds and that shouldn't have been allowed. Uh, there was Facebook posts that Kelly made and that's, that's pretty much just her going on a Facebook, maybe posting pictures of the baby and talking about how hard it is or how sick she is or whatever. And then people commenting about that. Yeah. You know, so they're, they're saying the state was saying, look, this is, this is her, this is why she was doing this because she wanted the attention. She wanted people to feel sorry for her for having a sick child. Um, And so they use, and so Kelly's defense on the appeal was saying that that shouldn't have been allowed in. Right. They said there was no evidence that Rachel had been poisoned with salt, but rather that, like you said earlier, that she was dehydrated and that was a misdiagnosis, was not salt poisoning, she was dehydrated. They also said that Rachel was being over-medicalized and that's why she got better when she was separated and they stopped medical treatment. So the doctors, were what the defense is saying is the doctors had over-prescribed remedies that were either hurting her or making her more sick. So she got better when they stopped the treatment or got better, you know, just got better on her own. And put her into medical isolation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But that is obviously not true because then sodium skyrockets when she goes home. Well, right. Because she was, everything was normal when she left. And then a few, you know, within less than 24 hours later, she comes back with her sodium extremely elevated So I would also wonder what her chloride levels were because if she's being poisoned with table salt, that's sodium chloride, Mm -hmm. right? So, you know, or sea salt or kosher salt, that's all sodium chloride. And then also most table salt, the fine stuff is iodized. Mm. So I wonder if there was like elevated iodine levels. If you guys cannot tell, Christine is an excellent nurse practitioner. <laughs> she is so I, extremely smart. And I, I am a rambler. No, you were, I, and the reason I know this, and she and I don't even live in the same state, but I, we've, we're in a lot of chat groups together and I've seen her responses to people um, asking questions about things. And she, all of her answers are always extremely well thought out. And she can just go into such detail that you're just like, wow, you you know she gets all this stuff. And you also know that she thinks very detailed about how to look at a situation. I mean, it's true. And I've also, I also know level. because you're sort of like my my out-of-state uh, telehealth practitioner, because I'm always <laughs> messaging her, like, my husband has this place on his eye. And, it, and I, oh, yes. And she's always right. Like, whatever she says, as soon as we'll go to, we'll go to the, our PCP or something. And, and in one case... I never got to ask you about that. Oh, it was... It, yeah, well... We'll check later. <laughs> yeah. My, my husband just went through this whole thing over the summer. And Christine 
I, she was the first person I, I went to because it's so easy. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry. I hate to do this to you again. But, and she's always great. She's like, it could be this, it could be this. And then we went to like four or five different practitioners within like two weeks. And we were sent all the way around a loop of like, it could be this. Here, take this medicine. And we go to someone else. No, that person was wrong. Take this. No, that person was wrong. Take this. And we ended up in the hospital and... We did end up finding out what it, what was going on, and he he was and he was fixed. And I don't I I it's my husband, so he I know he doesn't care me talking about this. But when it came right down to it, Christine was right from the very oh, was beginning. I? Yes, so <laughs> I never even got follow up. So <laughs> oh my god! So that's what's so funny about oh, it. Oh, your poor husband. <laughs> well, I'm glad he's I'm glad his eye is better. Yeah. When it comes to eye stuff, ooh, yes, so scary. So, and I know you guys can tell that she knows she would be right on this, right, right from the beginning. (laughs) So Rachel's defense, they're going, they're pulling out, they have to, that's their job, right? Then sometimes we're so hard on these attorneys, these defense attorneys, but they have to do their job in order for innocent people who are being charged with something that they didn't do, who are being accused of something that they're, it's just a complete, um, for whatever reason, it's not true and they definitely didn't do it. You want these defense attorneys doing their job to the very best of their abilities every single time. So that's what they're doing here. They're trying to come up with and they put their experts on. They have people that the doctors that come in that say she this baby could have been dehydrated. It could have been this, it could have been that. And they testified the, about all this all of these things that it's possible that her symptoms were consistent with what they were calling mitochondrial disease and that her condition improved because uh, the uh, because the over-medicalization was stopped. So um, as far as the sodium levels go, the state said that when Rachel was discharged from the hospital, you know, we, when we were saying this earlier, that mm. the fact that by 6 a.m. the next morning, her sodium level went so sky high that... The only explanation for that, you know, the, the the pediatrician who's the Munchausen's expert, she said the only explanation for that would be salt poisoning because she didn't even have time really to become so dehydrated that her salt levels would have been that high. Yeah. So Kelly's the only person who was with Rachel from the time she left the hospital completely fine until she took her back the next morning with the spike in her sodium level. Rachel, also the fact that Rachel suffered many complications with her central line catheter. Um, they said yeah. there was unusual damage to the line, which caused the line to leak and all the different infections that were suspicious based on their timing, frequently occurring shortly after hospital staff informed Kelly um, that Rachel was going to be discharged from the hospital, the types and quantities of the bacteria um, that were discovered, the her feeding tube, being moved out of place many times, her hemoglobin levels dropping several times, which could be explained by someone withdrawing blood from her central line. I mean, that's horrible to think about. Sometimes I'm just like, what in the world? So her, someone sitting there hooking a syringe up to that baby's central line and drawing, just drawing out blood. Sometimes when I'm taking blood at the hospital, checking someone's hemoglobin level because they have a freaking GI bleed and I'm sitting here pulling out blood, wasting <laughs> it, drives me crazy. I, I hate that. But it's necessary. You got to keep an eye on it. But that's what somebody they're thinking was doing to this poor baby on purpose, not to check it, just to lower her blood levels. Several episodes of hypernatremia to her sodium level being dangerously high, only explained by salt poisoning, poisoning, according to the experts. And then, of course, the therapeutic separation from her mom and her recovering completely after that. All of this is just, the state is just saying, this is our evidence and you're saying she was dehydrated and that it was misdiagnosed. That's the defense's evidence. And that's kind of how they were, that's how they handled this appeal. And the appellate judge uh, upheld the original conviction. I mean, are you surprised though? I mean, Psh, no. <laughs> good grief. Oh, they, uh, the defense said that, uh, that that doctor had previously been sued in a medical malpractice case because they said that, I mean, I guess the underlying allegation was that she had referred a child to Child Protective Services based on an erroneous lab result. Well, anybody could be sued. 
So that doesn't Especially if you work in Munchausen by proxy. Oh, yeah. That is a highly litigious population, I imagine. Yeah, because, and that's her job. I can't imagine her premiums. (laughs) Exactly. So that does not, none of that negates that huge stack of evidence against her. It just doesn't. So yeah, they, they definitely did not overturn that decision. And it's just hard, it's hard for me to try to play any sort of devil's advocate on her side for this because that's just too much evidence. Yeah, it was absolute child abuse. There's no doubt about it. So that is our awful Badner story for the week. It's so, I don't like doing stories about children because it's just so, it's it bothers me, it, you know, I guess the same reason I don't, I didn't want to be a pediatric nurse I didn't want to work in OB. I and it's not it's I someone has to do those jobs, but I it bothers me so much to my core that I oh, I have a hard time like I just want to pretend like it doesn't happen. I just want to be like I don't want to talk about that. That's too much. Oh yeah. I it's it's so hard to see even like kids sick. Same thing of like why I couldn't be a veterinarian. Oh yeah. Like my dog gets the sniffles. Uh, he, he had dog pneumonia. Like uh, the summer, this king was like on the couch with a fan on him, yeah. and I was I was bringing water to his face. The boyfriend gets sick, and I'm like, Ugh, go away, spray him with Lysol, and like you know, throw some Tylenol at, like at his face. You know, open up, catch. <laughs> but like the dog, I my heart breaks. Aww. I could never kids and animals. I could never do it. <laughs> Adult humans, yeah. I'm compassionate, but it's, you know, professional compassion at a yeah. distance. <laughs> when Mark was on, Mark did a little episode with me a few weeks ago, and we we talked about spouses in the, med- you know, medical, spouses of medical professionals. And one of the things, that's one of the things he brought up was how it's kind of hard for me to have a lot of compassion for, th- for, for colds and stump toes and things like that. And so he you know, he kind of threw me under the bus telling about how I am sometimes and how I'll like, how I laughed at him one day because Levi, <laughs> Levi accidentally uh, sat on his toe with a, with a metal chair and he was like, it hurt really bad. And you were just laughing about it. And I'm like, I'm so sorry. It's just that after I've been taking care of patients at the hospital who have been in motor vehicle crashes and their whole face is crushed or they're dealing with these acute illnesses that are extremely painful and we can't even manage their pain. And I have you know, all this compassion of these these people, it's really kind of hard for me to muster up to a whole lot of compassion for a stump toe. It's just, yeah. <laughs> and I deal with, I deal with, with stress by laughter anyway. That's just how I oh, am. Oh, yeah. Oh, and I make all the inappropriate jokes. <laughs> like, and I just laugh. The boyfriend had some, well, he had some, you know, personal GI issues going on. <laughs> and he's like, when is this going to get better? And I'm like, I don't know. It relapses and it remits. It's fine. He's like, but tell me, tell me how it's going to get better. How do I fix this? And I'm like, I don't know. Eh." And he's like, you should, you should give me more answers. And I'm like, I don't want to. (laughs) (laughs) I don't, you're not my patient. Come and see me at the at the office, okay? (laughs) My favorite, he like asked all these very detailed questions and like my, my textbook answer or my my go-to answer whenever it's like, stop asking me questions is, I don't know, I'm not a doctor. Oh. <laughs> Ouch. I go, I don't know, I'm not a doctor. <laughs> and he's like, oh, that is not fair. <laughs> Damn it, Christine. <laughs> <laughs> fix this. <laughs> fix it now. You can fix this. <clears throat> so... I guess we can talk about our good nurse story. I love this story. It's so sweet. Oh, it's so cute. Yeah. It's precious. An Alabama nurse rescued this little man. And I we're not supposed to call elderly people or older people. We're not supposed to say they're cute. We're not supposed to say anything, I guess, because it's, um, what is the, I can't remember now. I, ageist. Yeah, it's ageist and it's it's uh, disrespectful and condescending. And so it's like, think about how you would want to be treated and yet, I find myself all the time going, he's so cute. I love this little guy or this little, like, and then I'll, my back of my mind's going, Tina, 
that's not professional. Stop. You know, I don't ever say it to the patient though. So I at least keep myself from doing that. Yes. And that's a thing. He looks very kindly yes. and friendly. And look at this guy. Bless his heart is laying in a ditch. Here comes this nurse, this Alabama nurse, sweet Southern syrupy Alabama nurse who, <laughs> I'm sorry, but if I'm driving along the road and I see a car on the side of the road, the last thing I'm thinking is stop and help. I'm usually like, I'll call for help for someone, but I'm usually thinking, are they like laying a trap for me? Because I, you've heard these stories, haven't you? Oh, so we are true crime fans. Yes. And that's how we kind of started. We met basically. And I used to work in EMS in Boston. So I am a mass blank. People that are from Massachusetts know how that word ends. And (laughs) we, you know, we're known for being hardy and cold. And my joke is I don't stop for accidents. I swerve (laughs) because (laughs) I don't want to get involved. And it's not that I don't care. It's that one, I'm probably going to cause more problems by being there. And I don't want to get murdered. Uh, So, you know, if it's really bad, I'll call 911. If it's really, really bad and no one's there, then I'll, I've, I've stopped once. A motorcycle was crushing someone and mm. I, I stopped and we took the motorcycle off of them. But that one time in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, because <laughs> it's dangerous. Usually I don't is, stop, I swerve. <laughs> it is dangerous and you can, you can always call for help and do things, you know, something like that. But this, and that's why we highlight these people. There are people who are willing to put their lives on the line and do things like this. And she was amazing. She stopped when she saw a car on the side of the road. She saw, she took a second look. So saw someone lying in the ditch and they identified this man uh, as JB, I guess that's what he went. Mm -hmm. He was driving to church and they said must have become disoriented. Something happened. And she said, I called out to him and he answered me. She called 911. And she said she called her husband to bring blankets. And she said she stayed at the scene until help arrived. She just wanted to make sure he was okay. The paramedics took the man to North Alabama Medical Center uh, for it to be evaluated. And then he was admitted to the hospital. And he was admitted to her floor, right? Admitted to her floor, What's the, yeah. I mean, I, I don't know what the chances would be, but it seems. I mean, how many hospitals are in that area? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I know where we live. There's a lot. So it would be really unusual, yeah. <laughs> but I don't know where this is. Maybe it's a rural area, but um, she's. Uh, that's very sweet. His friend said that it's a Thanksgiving they'll never forget. I guess that's true. You know, they wanted to meet and thank her because they said it was truly her. She, it was a very heroic thing that she did because thanks to her awareness and quick thinking, they have a lot to be thankful for. I thought that was so sweet. Yeah, that is so sweet. And there's, I wish we were not living in a world where cynical ladies like us existed. <laughs> and that's a part of that is, I think, us being true crime fans is that our minds automatically go to the worst thing that could, somebody could do because I, listen, also working in emergency medicine. Things, yeah. You yeah. know what people are capable of. One of the reasons I, I've always said people listen to true crime, especially a lot of women listen to true crime is because it does let you know what can happen and what types of things. Oh, yeah. It helps you yeah. prepare yourself. And, and unfortunately, maybe it makes us a little, you know, jaded and a little bit too cautious sometimes and don't, you know, we, we're not willing to to put our, ourselves out there. I'm not saying that I wouldn't have. I don't know. I mean, I guess if probably if I saw a car on the side of the road like this and I looked and I could see that it was an older gentleman and I I would hope maybe that I would do what this nurse did. Her name was Tanya. I would hope I would do what she did, but she did it for sure. And so I'm so she proud of her. She did it. Yeah. So proud of her. Yeah. That's a happy story to end on. And it's such a cute picture. <laughs> I love the picture um, of her leaning over his bed. And it's just so, so sweet. It's just precious. His bed in the leaves. Yes. <laughs> oh, my goodness. He is literally on an like an embankment and just he, he had been there for a long time. That's so dangerous. And our this just happened in the month of November, the it happened at Thanksgiving and we've had a particularly cold November. It's been cold. So this could have been, this could have ended badly for him, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So 
proud of proud of her, proud of our fellow medical professional. She she's doing what most medical professionals do, the vast majority of them do, and that's being a good person and she's a good nurse. The our bad nurse stories are the the rare, the the you know, the outlier. And I think it's such a testament to how compassionate and kind uh, the majority of healthcare professionals are because Tina really has to struggle to find <laughs> stories to report on. Always. It's, it's never easy. And thank... And that's a good thing. Yes. I'm glad. I'm so glad. Uh, whenever I, I, I'm having to look through stories, um, scour the internet, thankfully, I have a lot of listeners now sending me stories. That's really nice. And you guys, please continue to do that because it's it's wonderful. I'm kind of building up a little, a little database of of these stories. So I appreciate that. So Christine, remind everybody where they can find you. So I host the podcast Antidote Stories in Medicine. It is on all of the usual podcast platforms that you are getting Good Nurse Bad Nurse on. Uh, I am on Facebook and Instagram and sort of Twitter, but I accidentally deleted it. So now there's like zero followers. And so if you want to be my friend and follow uh, Antidote's pod on Twitter, that would be really nice because I have to rebuild it and I just haven't had the time. Um, Or yeah, but Antidote Stories in Medicine, I share stories about uh, working in EMS, my career in primary care, having been a nurse. I have guests on. Uh, There's going to be an episode coming out soon when I get to edit it. So yeah. Tina's been on there. We've talked before. Yes. Yeah, that was that was a fun episode. We'll have to do that again. <laughs> I I swore and uh Tina had to bleep me when I came on the last time here. <laughs> <laughs> you were really good this whole time. You even bleeped yourself. I was so better behaved. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate you guys for listening and go look up Christine and her podcast. I know you're gonna love it. Um, it's really interesting. Lots of interesting stories and fun people from all over the world. Yeah, yeah. Australia, Japan. Yeah. England. You'll like it. U.S. You will definitely like <laughs> it. So you guys can, of course, you can come follow us on uh, at Good Nurse, Bad Nurse on Instagram, GMBN Podcast on Facebook, and you can look us up on our website at goodnursebadnurse.com and give us feedback, send us stories, good nurse stories, bad nurse stories, whatever you want to hear. And we really appreciate it. And I want to remind you guys, and even if you're a bad girl or a bad boy, right, Christine? Yep. Or other gender affiliation that you decide. But whatever you do, be a good nurse. (laughs) Or nurse practitioner. (laughs) That's right, too. This this whole, this ending is going to start getting so long. (laughs) Thank you.